Last time on the Cross-References podcast, we started a look into socialism. Is this an economic philosophy and worldview that's compatible with the Bible? Many Christians believe so today, but I don't. And I think I can prove it. Welcome to the Cross-References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a newbie Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is Luke Taylor, a pastor, Star Wars fan, and philanthropist. I'll explain why later. And don't forget, this episode is a part two. Make sure you listen to the previous episode first, so that you're not lost when we get into the subject matter of today. Last time, we discussed socialism's definition, as well as the virtues and vices of socialism. I explained why socialism has fake virtues. A lot of people say they are pro-socialism because it helps the poor. However, the good aspects of socialism are not virtuous as understood by the Bible. And let's boil it down to this idea. If our society embraced socialism, it's either going to help you or hurt you personally. If socialism helps you, then you can't claim to have altruistic motivations for desiring it. You're going to be receiving someone else's money. You're not an innocent member in this transaction. Or is socialism going to hurt you because more of your money is going to be taken and given to programs that help poor people? Well, guess what? You don't have to wait for the government to tax you and redistribute that money. You can do it right now. So the virtues of socialism are a sham. If you want to be more generous with your money, there is nothing stopping you from going out and doing that right now. If instead you're on the other end of the economic spectrum and you just want someone else's money, that's where the real vices of socialism come in. Greed, selfishness, and jealousy. And socialism cultivates this in its followers. Politicians who promote socialism constantly prey on this negative aspect of human nature. In today's episode, I want to look at Karl Marx, the creator and founder of this economic theory. And at the end of the show, we're going to do a quick comparison with capitalism. And I don't want to do a whole episode on capitalism versus the Bible, but I know there are going to be some people out there who say that however bad socialism is, it's still better than capitalism. I want to at least provide a counter to that before we close up today. But first, let's look at what the Bible says about socialism. Now, we can't really do that directly because Socialism is a few hundred years old, while the Bible is thousands of years old. So let's look at this through a lens of how pro-socialism people will try to say that the Bible endorses socialism. And the passage I see people go to the most is this passage from Acts 2. At the end of, at the end of Acts 2, it, starting at verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and, of, and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and all had things in common. Let me read that sentence again. That's verse 44. And all who believed were together, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is often cited as socialism 
because everyone was sharing as they had need. And by the way, this is one of my favorite passages in the book of Acts. <laughs> you know, I read it and I can indeed see why people think it endorses socialism. But what we need to do is look at a few key differences between this passage and socialism as an economic system. Okay, so one, this sharing of resources that you read about in the Bible is 100% voluntary. Nobody is being forced to share their possessions. This is not being forced by anybody, even the church. The individuals in this little collective are motivated by such love for one another that they are freely and voluntarily giving of their possessions to anyone who had need. So it's not a legal system, and it's not being legally imposed. In socialism, as a contrast, you are being forced against your will to give up your money or possessions for the so-called common good. And it's not free or voluntary. Acts 2 is. Socialism basically says that you don't have property rights, that anything you own can be redirected to the government, a.k.a. the people, if the people decide that they need it more. But the Bible doesn't view it that way. The 8th commandment says, you shall not steal. The 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Notice how all of those things belong to your neighbor, not you. The Bible affirms private property ownership. So the first major distinction of Acts 2 from socialism is the voluntary nature. And then another major distinction is that this in Acts 2, it was between people inside of a church. This was not a government program. So this was among a like-minded community of people with shared values. So when people try to use Acts 2 as a justification for socialism, you're basically saying that the government should be run that the way that the church was. And that is not a Christian mandate. Doing so would be actual Christian nationalism. Not just like the patriotism that, that some Christians pretend to be upset by today and they call it Christian nationalism. Well, actually turning the church into your government, that would be actual Christian nationalism. And by the way, this thing you read about in Acts 2, this wasn't a rule for all churches of all times. This was a story about how one church ran at one time. Now, it's a good model for us. It's, it's worthy of being emulated voluntarily, of course. I'm not against it at all. I'm just saying, even if it was a, even if it was a command for the church to model itself this way with all the members pooling their resources together, that would still not justify enacting it on a governmental level. And this actually proves why socialism always fails when you try to run a whole nation that way. You know, I'm fine with Christians looking at X2 and calling it socialism. Like, I'm not offended by that. Um, if we can call it that with the caveat that this is a localized form of socialism and not a government socialism, then, you know, sure, you can call it socialism. I mean, I wouldn't, but you can. This actually demonstrates, though, why socialism doesn't work on a national level. In the small church community where all these members kind of pulled their resources together voluntarily to help care for one another, this works because everybody is on the same page in a moral sense. Everyone is being motivated by love. Well, this can potentially work if everyone is a loving Christian who's not trying to take advantage of each other. This could work on a very, very small scale among trustworthy people. But that's exactly why it wouldn't work on a large scale. 
Because if you have a large group of people who are not necessarily Christian or motivated by love, then guess what? Some people are going to try to game the system. Some people are going to take advantage of others. Some people are going to try to enrich themselves without working very hard. Some people are not going to work at all. And the longer socialism goes on, like on a massive scale, the less and less motivated people are going to be to work. Like, why start a business if the government's just going to take 90% of your income? (laughs) Why work at all if the government's just going to take money from the wealthy and give it to you for doing nothing? Like, why be an innovator and discover new things and find more efficient ways of doing things if you're not going to see a reward for it? So yes, Acts 2, it shows how socialism works, but it also shows how socialism doesn't work as a nationwide government-imposed economic system. And that's not even theoretical, by the way. Just ask the Soviet Union, ask Venezuela, ask Cuba. And speaking of people not wanting to work under socialism, this is why the economy of the country always suffers. You work a job to make money to provide for yourself and your family. You receive money because you're providing some kind of useful good or service to the public, you know, something that people are willing to pay for. This is a basic fact of life going back to the dawn of time. If you find out that you're going to receive a universal basic income or a government handout from that they get from taxing the rich, then what's your motivation to work a job anymore? You won't have one. Like, why would anyone work a job if you're just going to get free money? So how are goods and services going to flow through a society if nobody wants to provide them? Do you expect that people are going to just like provide these things out of the goodness of their hearts? Well, that's exactly what socialists expect. Um, Karl Marx, he believed that people are just so fulfilled by working that they would essentially do it for free as as like a form of (laughs) self-expression, while everybody else would be able to do whatever they want all day, that they wouldn't need a job, they wouldn't need to contribute to society. And that's just ignorant of human nature. Um, let me repeat what the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 3. Uh, I say repeat because we actually read this on Socialism versus the Bible Part 1, the previous episode. Let me just read, repeat what the Bible says in uh, 2 Thessalonians 3. This was verse 10 that we read last time. It said, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. I'm just going to say that one more time. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now let me read to you from something called the Green New Deal. Um, This was proposed as an act to be voted on in Congress by some of the socialists who are in our government right now. And it has a lot of radical proposals in it that are supposed to shift our economy into a more socialistic structure. Okay, and it says this as one of the goals, which, again, the socialists wanted to sign this into law a few years ago here in America. They said they wanted this act to provide economic security for those unable or unwilling to work. Unable or unwilling. They wanted to give you economic security either way. And of course, it was very vague about what form that economic security would take, but if it's going to, but security means it's going to provide for you. They might as well just send you free money if that's what it takes, if you are just unwilling to work. Well, this is directly contradictory to the Bible, where it says in the Bible, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. 
So you see, socialism is is unbiblical. It's unrealistic, but just even besides that, it's unbiblical. But to come back to this point about it not being realistic for just, just a second, socialism has been tried several times in the past few hundred years. Um, some leader who doesn't understand economics or human nature, they get into power, they promise all this pie-in-the-sky utopia, and then it all falls apart very quickly. Venezuela. It was once the wealthiest nation in South America. The Soviet Union. It was once the United States' main competitor for a dominant world power. Today, the people in Venezuela are eating dogs. The Soviet Union fell apart in 1989. Um, A few weeks ago or a month or two ago, I watched this movie Moneyball. And it was a movie about um, baseball managers in Major League Baseball. It had this line in the movie. Um, The scouts were trying to sell Brad Pitt's character on some player who just can't deliver. And they're telling him, hey, he has a beautiful swing, classic swing, real clean stroke. And Brad Pitt says, if he's such a good hitter, why doesn't he hit good? I watched that movie recently. That that line just applies to so much of life. If he's such a good hitter, why doesn't he hit good? And I'd ask that about socialism. If socialism works, why doesn't it work? If socialism works, why doesn't it work? I know I set out today to demonstrate why socialism is unbiblical, and that is the primary goal of today. If I was trying to construct an argument for why it's logically incoherent, then I'd probably adjust a lot of things that I said. I'm more interested today in analyzing it from a biblical point of view. I'm just adding that even if you could make it work in like a biblical framework, that wouldn't change the reality that socialism fails everywhere it's tried. Okay, I'm finally ready to talk about Karl Marx. He's the creator of socialism. So if you were to believe the modern propaganda, you'd have to conclude that Karl Marx, that he was this great thinker and humanitarian, and that he had this altruistic idea of how to help the poor. But the truth is, Karl Marx was a lazy bum who never had a job, never contributed anything to society. He took terrible care of his family, and he spent his whole existence trying to figure out a way to avoid any responsibilities. And he may have been literally (laughs) demon-possessed. I know that sounds a little bit extreme, but just wait till you hear what his family said. So Karl Marx, he lived from 1818 to 1883. And Karl Marx claimed that his soul had chosen hell, that his brain was filled with hellish vapors, that the devil had pierced his soul with a sword, he said that uh, he see he said that in poetry that he wrote in the 1830s and 40s. Now, was it just figurative language? Well, possibly, but it's also possible that he was literally demon possessed. His family also believed that he was, by the way. And in fact, Karl Marx's own son uh, referred to him as his devil in a letter that he wrote. Robert Payne, uh, he was an author who wrote Marx and a biography in 1968, and he said this about Karl Marx. He had a devil's view of the world and a devil's malignity. Marx also had this rich friend who basically took care of Marx all his life. I don't don't have the slightest idea why Friedrich Engels supported Karl Marx. They were friends. They, They both liked studying philosophy. Engels was rich, but Engels did not earn his wealth. He was born into it. But he liked Karl Marx's ideas. And so he actually funded Marx's life of doing nothing and writing demented poetry. (laughs) And by the way, that friend, Frederick Engels, that friend also said that demons had Marx by the hair. 
Not to mention that Marx was adamantly anti-God and anti-Christianity. So speaking for myself, as someone who's a Christian, and you know, in case you haven't figured that out yet, as someone who firmly believes in the possibility of demonic possession because it's in the Bible, then I believe it's at least possible that Marx himself was demon-possessed. Now, eventually, Marx, Karl Marx, he wrote a book. It was called The Communist Manifesto. And this was all his ideas about work and how a utopian socialist society could function. And again, Marx himself, he never had a job his entire life. But he thought he was smart enough to rethink thousands of, hu- of years of human history and of how the workforce operated. And so the book, it came out in 1848. One year later, Karl Marx was evicted from his apartment because, <laughs> frankly, he was so filthy and disgusting. And I'm not, I'm not kidding. He never bathed. He smelled terrible. He had warts and boils from a lack of hygiene. His landlord said all he did was smoke and drink all day that the living conditions that he resided in were awful. Everything was stained and dirty and disgusting. His landlord kicked him out just to be rid of him. Okay, this was after Marx had already published the Communist Manifesto. So I say that because I want you to envision this as this is the man that those ideas in the book came from. Marx died in 1883. He died in despair, it was said. Right before he died, he said, How pointless and empty is life, but how desirable. All he had were ridiculous dreams, but really no ambition to make them happen. He found no purpose to living. As far as his family goes, um, his wife was said to be suicidal every day. Both his daughters actually did commit suicide. And then he also had another kid by a maid. Uh, Like he had an affair with one of the maids because... Like I said, he was an unfaithful, hideous person. If you remember, part of his vision for the world was that nobody should be tied down in a monogamous marriage or have any family responsibilities. So, you know, it's no surprise he was cheating on his wife and had an illegitimate illegitimate child. And you can only imagine the way he must have treated his family when he's writing books about how he doesn't want to take care of them. In every way that you can measure it, Karl Marx was an awful of a person, as you can imagine. Now, the Bible says, when we are evaluating a belief system, and I'll admit, I'm about to read a Bible passage, and the passage I'm talking about is about, um, it's from 2 Peter, it's talking about false teachers within the church. The Bible says to look at the lifestyle of the person that those ideas are coming from. Okay, let me read 2 Peter chapter 2, just some verses from chapter 2. He said, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bought them, uh, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow in their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And I'm skipping down to verse 10. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord, But these, like your rational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions. While they feast with you, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Again, 
I recognize that this is talking about false prophets within the church. This passage is warning us against teachers like Joseph Smith, who founded the Mormons, or Charles Russell, who founded Jehovah's Witnesses, or Muhammad, who founded Islam. If you go back and look at the lifestyles of those men, they were deplorable. (laughs) And this passage perfectly described them. So I know from these verses from 2 Peter, it's talking about false prophets in religion. And I'm not trying to take the Bible out of context by quoting it here. Here's what I want to say. The description of false prophets right here could just as perfectly describe Karl Marx, who created socialism. He was a blasphemer of God. He was an adulterous person, a greedy man. I mean, he was as sensual and as much a reveler as anyone you can possibly find. So my question today for Christians who want to follow socialism, it's just, it's just this. Do you want to follow the philosophy of a man who lived his life that way, who treated his family that way? Is that who you are looking to as a guide for, <laughs> for anything in life? Colossians 2.8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So maybe you'd say, oh wait, socialism? Well, it's not a philosophy, it's an economic system. Well, Karl Marx believed it was a philosophy. To him, capitalism and socialism are ways of life. They're belief systems. They they result in certain beliefs about the world that follow from how you view economic theory. That they're not just simply economic systems, they are entire world views. So we are going to close down in just a little bit um, with a quick recap, and then I do want to talk about capitalism before we go. And by the way, If you like hearing about current events and some of the more political issues, I'll mention I do have another podcast where I talk about those kind of things all the time. It's called Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast. And I've been known to rant about socialism over there as well. So if you want more of this, go check out Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast. Wherever you get this podcast, you can probably find my other one as well. And if you have any questions on what we're talking about today, Um, If you have a rebuttal, if you have some aspects of socialism you don't think I considered very well or didn't consider at all, shoot us an email or leave a comment if you're you're on YouTube. Be happy to get feedback. Even if you disagreed, be happy to get feedback. Crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to take questions, happy to take um, rebuttals and be able to respond to them in the future. Be more than happy to do that. So send those our way. Um, If you just want to talk about something totally different, if you have a recommendation on something I should do a program on in the future, I'd be glad to take that as well. Crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. You can also find our email in the show notes, uh, wherever wherever you're listening to this from. And next time on the podcast, we'll finally be back in the study on the book of Ezekiel. I want to try to get through the entirety of chapter four. So I hope you can be with us for that. That one is going to involve some math. (laughs) So pray for me because I really, really hate math. And um, I want to try to teach that lesson. Actually, from what I've looked into it so far, it is quite mind-blowing. It's a little bit of, it's a lot to wrap your mind around, but it is mind-blowing once you get there. So I'm really looking forward to, to doing that chapter of Ezekiel. That should be the next episode. And then after that, uh, episode 17 of Cross References, I'm, I don't know. I might do something that's a little bit easier, but I am wanting to get to 
another popular worldview right now, um, another controversial subject. I'd like to do an episode about critical race theory. Maybe another couple of episodes, kind of like this. I might have to split it up. But um, I say I would like to. I'm definitely going to do it. I'm just not sure if I'm going to have it ready by episode 17 or not. So if it's not ready yet, I'll plug something shorter in there. But look for an episode soon um, about critical race theory versus the Bible. So today, just to recap, we discussed socialism. (laughs) And I defined it. uh, Well, I say today, I'm actually recapping our previous program too. I'm recapping part one and and covering what we talked about today again. So we discussed socialism a lot. And I defined it as defined by actual socialists, like socialists, even socialists alive today. So nobody can accuse me of not understanding it or not representing it. I used their definitions. So socialism, Marxism, it divides the, the world into an oppressor, oppressed narrative, where people who provide jobs are oppressors and workers are oppressed. And I talked about the unique way that that's playing out in America, where they also try to include every other intersectional category, such as race, sexuality, gender, and more. And and in America right now, they're trying to mix that into the oppressor slash oppressed narrative as well. And then I talked about socialism's fake virtues, that socialism, it claims to promote generosity, but taking a rich person's money by force and giving it to the poor or yourself or a government program, that is not generosity. According to the Bible, being generous is giving your own money, not redistributing someone else's. So it's fake virtue. And also, socialism has real vices. Taking someone's money and giving it to yourself is greed or stealing or both, really. Daydreaming about having all the money that millionaires have that you don't, that you didn't do anything to earn, that's just jealousy. And the politicians out there who are trying to stir up emotions in the masses by trying to get them to want that money, I mean, that's that's like demons tempting us with the very real human tendency of greed and jealousy. So they call it love and charity, but no. It's fake virtues and real vices. And any politician who claims that, you know, we just need to raise taxes to help the poor, um, any politician saying that could go down to their bank account today empty it out and give it to poor people. (laughs) If if they were sincere, that's what they could go do. They want to tax the 1% at 90%. If you remember from last time when I talked about the one percenters, that would be the richest 1% of society, okay? Who are always being villainized. There was a whole movement 10 years ago against them. Um, And politicians today say we need to tax them at 90%. They want to tax the top 1% at 90%. But you know what? The people saying that, they are the 1%. And they could go give 90% of their income away right now if they wanted to, but they won't do it. It's fake virtue and real vices. And then finally, we discussed Karl Marx, the man, um, that he was a con artist, that he never had a job. He lived like a slob. His family was suicidal. It's entirely possible (laughs) that he was literally demon-possessed. And I'm just basing that on what the people who knew him said about him. And he died a sad and miserable man. And yet, this ridiculous book that he wrote has become one of the most influential pieces of literature in the 20th century. And even today, it promotes an economic system that has been tried and failed time and time again. And now, people want to try it in America. 
Well, if they do, it will be the end of this country's greatness. But kind of like I mentioned in episode 12, um, if you go back to that, America is not a part of Bible prophecy. So maybe we will fade away as a major player on the world scene. And maybe that's God's plan. And maybe he'll use socialism as a way to bring us down. That's possible to me. But remember, America has only gotten more and more rebellious to God over the years. And so if we get socialism, it will be a judgment of God, not a blessing. Um, and I want to address an objection that some of you may have before we go. You may be listening right now and you're saying, but what about capitalism? Sure, we can deconstruct socialism and poke a bunch of holes in it and throw a bunch of Bible verses at it. But can you really say that capitalism is any better? Well, let's talk about that today as we close down. Because I'm not hopping on here today to say that God is a capitalist or that Jesus voted for Ronald Reagan. Okay, I feel like God is bigger than temporary economic systems. So let me just at least say this. The current year is 2022. Okay, and I'm not sure when it is that you'll be listening to this. Um, but as I'm recording it, it's 2022. And right now, I feel that capitalism is the best system that our society could follow and that it has been for some time. And I'll explain what I mean by best. Let me just say, could we, yay, could we have improvements made to our tax code? Sure. Like, could we have some laws that better protect workers' rights? Absolutely. And I think I could show that we have had improvements in those areas over the past few decades under a capitalistic structure. Okay. There will always be poor people because there will always be people who have a harder situation in life and there will always be people who are lazy and don't want to work. Not saying that that's all poor people. I'm just saying there's always going to be people like that and so therefore they're going to be poor. There's always going to be people who are really bad at managing their money and that, and for that reason they will be poor or live a poor lifestyle. Um, so Jesus said, as Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. And I don't say that to imply that it means that we shouldn't care about helping the poor. But I will say that means that any economic system that says it could totally eradicate poverty, <laughs> that's simply not going to happen according to the words of Jesus. There will always be poor people. But you know what? Um, the people who are considered poor by American standards— you got to remember, they're st still doing a lot better than the typical citizens of the rest of the world. Like more than half of the population of the world lives on less than $10 a day. The majority of people on this planet, think about this, live on less than 10 bucks a day. Like you can be literally homeless in America and doing better than that. Because that's the level of wealth that capitalism has brought this country to. Go ask Venezuela or Cuba what socialism did for the poor in their country. And by the way, you don't have to travel south of the border to do that because many Venezuelans and Cubans have come here to America. So when I hear Americans complain about the rich, that, that always strikes me as so narrow-minded because we are the rich, all of us. We should be thankful every day and every hour. And the complaining is so narrow-minded and petty. 4.5% of the world gets to live in America. And yet people here will complain all day about the 1% of the 4.5% and 
instead of being thankful that they weren't born in the other 95%. So some of the criticisms that I've made today towards socialism are that it has fake virtues and real vices. And I've criticized it for stoking greed and jealousy in the hearts of the masses. But somebody could say, but isn't there a lot of greed and selfishness in the capitalism world too? Can't a lot of millionaires and billionaires make an idol out of profits, sometimes even at the expense of their employees? And to that I say, yes, absolutely, that is 100% true. But here's what I like about capitalism. It provides a choice of whether to do that or not. Yes, some millionaires and CEOs can be greedy for profit, but they can also have a choice to be generous. And many of them are. Remember those evil one percenters that the Occupy Wall Street crowd was writing about 10 years ago? Well, they give one third of all the charitable giving in this country. 1% gives one third of all charity. So if the one percenters started losing 90% of their income to taxes, as Bernie Sanders has suggested doing, then guess what? You could also see charities shrink by about 30% across this country. Homeless shelters, soup kitchens, crisis response teams, foster care, adoption agencies, countless other charities across this country would immediately have to slash their budgets. Um, let me give you an example of a, like a real-life thing. George Lucas, he was the creator of Star Wars. Uh, when he made the first Star Wars movie back in 1977, he essentially made it for free. Um, as long as he could have the rights to the film instead of letting the studio have the rights. And the studio agreed to that because they thought that making the movie, they, they were starting to think this movie would be such a bust. They were, they were just willing to give him the rights in exchange for making the movie, basically. And then, of course, it turned out to be a huge hit. Highest grossing film of all time until, I think, until Titanic came out in the 90s. So George Lucas, he made six Star Wars films, and the last one was in 2005. I remember because he said it was going to be the last time you'd ever see a Star Wars film in theaters. So I remember I went to see it three times as a teenager. And then he said he didn't want to make a Star Wars movie ever again. But he held on to the rights to it for a while, so no one else could make a Star Wars movie either. And then um, finally, he relented in 2012. He went ahead and sold the rights. If you remember, he sold the rights to Star Wars to Disney in 2012 for $4 billion. Now you might say, oh, wow, he's so greedy. He just wanted a bunch of money. Well, it's not, it's not for me to judge George Lucas's heart, but here's one thing that I found fascinating about that whole story is that he didn't really seem to care about the money. Um, he gave the $4 billion to charity. He sold the rights to Star Wars, and then he said, you know, I don't really need the money, and he just gave that to charity. Now, look, I know he was already rich. I mean, so literally, yeah, he, could, you know, he didn't need the money, of course. I'm just saying that is a ton of money to just give away. And he's given a lot of other money away to charity too. So, so hey, does that make him a good person? Again, that's not really for you or I to decide. We are not in a position to judge billionaires. But it makes you a good person if you're a Star Wars fan because now all the money that you poured into it has went to charity. Okay, not really. That's not what I was going to say. But some of the money really did. Um... So we nerds are making the world a better place. I'm kidding around, but here's what I'm saying, okay? Not all billionaires only care about money, all right? So when people say that, 
this way of demonizing the one percenters, I'm just saying that's not a biblical method of how to judge a certain group of people. And by the way, yes, the richest 10% in this country have 70% of the wealth. But they also pay 71% of income taxes in this country. The top 25%, they pay 87% of the income tax. Okay? The top 1%, all right, those those evil one percenters who just want to, they just need to pay their fair share, right? They pay 40% of income taxes. Okay, so the top the top 1%, I know I'm throwing a lot of numbers out here, but that top 1%, they make about 21% of all the country's wealth. Okay, I agree. That's a lot. But they do pay 40% of the income tax. And speaking of fair share, like what is a fair share? Shouldn't the people making 21% of the income be paying 21% of the income tax? That would be fair to me. Like that's literally the only definition of fair <laughs> that makes objective sense. Well, they don't pay 21%. They pay 40%. So when people say that the rich need to pay their fair share, that's frankly, that's just a propaganda phrase. It doesn't mean anything. The word fair has no relation to anything in how they calculate that. It's a vague phrase that can be changed or applied to any number you want, and you can change it anytime. You hear the phrase income inequality sometimes, um, you know, talking about the difference in what the CEOs are making versus the workers down in the factories and so forth. But that is not really an issue. Is the frontline worker being paid what they agreed to when they took the job? If so, then that is all that should matter to them, not what the CEO makes. Nobody is stealing anything from the frontline worker. Nobody is oppressing their workers by paying them an agreed upon amount. And by the way, the, the wealthy people, the wealth makers, are also wealth providers. By which I mean, it's the rich people who also create businesses that give jobs to everybody else. And that's a good thing. Like, that's beneficial to society. If all the wealthy people lost their wealth because we decided to embrace socialism, guess what? A lot of jobs that everyday people are relying on to pay their bills and put food on the table, those jobs are also going to dry up. So back to what I was saying about a choice. Yes, capitalism allows a lot of people to accumulate vast amounts of wealth, far more than any person could ever need. Hoarding wealth is a sin, but it's a sin against God. If the money hasn't been acquired by stealing or illegal means, then merely earning it is not by itself a sin, okay? Being rich on its own is not a sin. A rich person has a choice whether to use their money in a godly or ungodly way, but the mere fact of being rich is not inherently sinful. There are people in the Bible who were incredibly wealthy and were believers. Uh, Abraham, probably didn't know this. Abraham was thought to be the richest man in the world at the time that he was alive. And he's the great patriarch of the Old Testament. Solomon, he was the richest king, okay? Potentially the richest man in the world. And he wrote three books of the Bible as a rich man. King Nebuchadnezzar, he got saved in, in Daniel chapter 4, something else a lot of people don't realize. He was probably the richest man in the world. So being rich is not by itself a sin or a character flaw. So we have no moral grounds by which to make it illegal to be rich. <laughs> and we, we're overstepping our bounds when we demonize people just for having a lot of money. 
Like, could they be greedy? Could they be overzealous for profit? Well, yeah. You know, maybe even most of the time. But we don't have a right to judge every rich person just for being rich. If they aren't using their money to oppress anyone, if they've obtained it legally, then how they use it is between them and God. It's not yours or my business. Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. So we are judged for what we have been given individually. We aren't judged for what someone else has. So we need to be more focused on our own situations. And by the way, the rich person is most likely giving a greater percentage of their money away in donations each year than you are. So keep that in mind before you judge too. And if you see the money that a rich person has and you just want that for yourself, that makes you the greedy one, my friend. Because even if you're poor, poor people can still be greedy. Poor people can still make money into an idol. And while I think it is bad to make an idol out of the money that you're working for, I think it's even worse to be greedy for wealth that you haven't earned. To want to take the wealth that someone else earned. That's, that's greed, jealousy, and laziness. You don't get a pass on jealousy just because some people have more than you. And in fact, that's literally a prerequisite to being jealous a lot of the time. So don't be taken in by these politicians who try to stoke the very human and natural desire to want what others have. That's temptation. And we know where temptation comes from. Capitalism gives people a choice for what to do with that money. Socialism takes it away. Forced charity through taxation is not charity at all. It's not true generosity. It's just theft on your part. Socialism is just fake virtues and real vices. Thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you that you're not a bad person for being rich, but you're a good person if you watch Star Wars. Oh, 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 oh,